Gospel of John chapter 21 for our sermon passage this morning. And as you're doing so, think back, take a trip down memory lane, think back to the time and the place and the occasion in which you proposed to your wife. It was the end of May of 1997 or the beginning of June 1997. I couldn't quite remember when, but Aaron's parents lived on a couple of acres of pristine Sonoran Desert, uh, north of Phoenix, Arizona, in Cave Creek, Arizona. Their house was in the middle of perfect cactus and rock, which, you know, is my landscape of choice. And I don't know why we did it then and there, but we were out on a walk together, and we came to a bluff that overlooked the river bottom, and I got down on my knee, and somehow I had composed a song to sing to her for the proposal, And so I got down on my knee, and I I sang to her, and she said yes. We have not been back to Cave Creek, Arizona in at least a decade, and we have never gone back to that specific bluff. So what if I were to blindfold her on Monday, and we hop on an airplane, and I don't tell her where we're going, but I take her to that place again. I find the original song. The song has since been lost. I don't even know if the song was ever written down, but I find the song, and there I am on my knee singing. Probably all of those original emotions come flooding back. You kind of recreate the experience again. You have places like that in your life. You have that, it was a little Italian restaurant with a table in the corner with a bottle of red or the bottle of white. If you recreate the details of that original event, if you are able to go and and get the original waiter and bring him back and have the original menu, all of the same items and the the same candlelight and all of the details line up, if you're able to recreate that event. But this time, you know, the first time when you proposed, you, you couldn't afford anything. You couldn't afford a wedding ring. But this time... When you propose, you, you pull out this giant rock and you slip it on her finger. And it's all of the original events, but it explodes into something uh, more wonderful and more uh, uh, mind-boggling, doesn't it? We have something like that in our passage this morning. Not only one of those somethings, but there are two recreated events in our passage that have enormous significance for the apostle Peter and for his disciples. And I thought this week, I thought, isn't it amazing how our God has such a penchant for the dramatic? He's a dramatist. Like the very points that he did, he is communicating in this passage, he could have done so by, by a mere dialogue, you know, by just kind of bland prose. He could have done it that way. But instead, he is... Uh, he's, he cares about our emotions and our memories. He reignites the emotions and the memories in the heart. He cares about our senses. This is such a, a tremendously sensory experience for Peter and the disciples. It's all packed. And it's got to be one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. And we read, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. 
It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. A couple of quick notes here. You know, a lot of interpreters chastise the disciples at this point. They say, oh, they've abandoned the, the commission. They've gone back to their old way of life. They've gone back to fish. I don't think that's the most charitable interpretation. Remember what Jesus told them. He said, go north to Galilee and await for their orders there. And that's where they're at. They're up in the north in Galilee awaiting future orders but they still have to eat. They still have to put food and money on the table. So I interpret it as they're, they're fishing to take care of themselves until they, until they get more. They learn more. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Verse 7, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is, John, John said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was so full of fish, so many, it was full of large fish, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, in this next section, verses 15 through 17, you may have heard it, uh, you've heard this said before in Bible teaching or preaching, that there are two different Greek verbs here used for love. What Jesus is going to say is, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. And then... So the idea being, and the way that this gets translated in our passage, the text here is, do you truly love me like agape? And and this thinking is a higher level of love, kind of like a a divine imitation of love. And phileo is, is a perfectly legitimate form of love, but it's more brotherly kind of love. And Jesus says, do you love me like this? And, And Peter says, well, I love you like this. Do you love me like this? I love you like this. And the third time he says, Peter, do you do you phileo me? And Peter's really cut to the heart because 
Now he's questioning his, his even lesser love. And he says, you know, so that may be what's going on here. It's hard to know. And the reason it's hard to know is because John, he, he changes up Greek words regularly just for stylistic purposes. I think later on in the passage, there are two different words used for sheep, for instance. So maybe that's in the background. Maybe that's what's going on. Verse 15 When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify, uh, Peter would glorify God. You know, so tradition holds that Peter was crucified under Emperor Nero, but because he did not believe that he was worthy to kind of imitate Jesus in that way, he demanded that he be crucified upside down. And then Jesus said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was following them. This is, this is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Final verses. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room enough for the books that would be written. And thus ends the Gospel of John. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Such an incredible passage. If you weren't here, we covered chapter 20 last week. And chapter 20 would have been a perfectly good good spot for John to have ended his gospel. You think about it. Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room. He appears to so-called Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas has this this great high confession. My Lord and my God. It would be a that would have been a fine spot to end it all. You know, Thomas and the disciples believed and 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 they got the point and everybody lived happily ever after. But instead, the story continues almost to chapter 1, which is, or 21, which is like an epilogue with these two recreated events. Let's look at these. Number one, 
scene one. Where are these guys located? Uh, they are at the, on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, oh, that's a place that was laden with memories, wasn't it? Sea of Galilee is the very same one that Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. Sea of Galilee was the one, they rode with him on that boat, crisscrossing that lake, dozens and dozens of times. I mean, most of their ministry took place in that area and on the shore of that lake. I mean, all of their, this was their old stomping grounds. All of their best memories were on the Sea of Galilee. And it was on the Sea of Galilee that they first encountered the miraculous catch of fish. About three years prior, these same disciples had been fishing all night. And it's kind of funny when you read through the gospel stories that you have commercial, professional commercial fishermen. And every time they fish in the gospels, they catch what? Nothing. (laughs) Until Jesus comes along and says, I think you should fish here. So that's what ends up happening is they catch nothing through the night and Jesus says, he says, put out into the deep waters and let your nets down there. And Peter being the fisherman, he knows that the last place in the entire lake you're going to catch fish at the, the break of day is out in the deep waters. But Peter says, all right, I'll do it, Lord, um, just for you. And they, they do that and they haul in such a large amount of fish. It said that, you remember, the boats begin to sink. There's so many fish. And Peter, he falls down on his knees and he says, what does he say? Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I don't deserve to be in your presence. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid, Simon. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 153 fish is what, are, what is caught here in John chapter 21. What is the significance of 153 fish? You say, well, it's an eyewitness detail. I agree. I think it is an eyewitness detail. But I think there's more going on here. And down through the ages, Christian readers and, and, and interpreters have said, there's got to be something more here. John, when you read John's gospel very closely, you find that John is a very symbolic writer. He's very uh, careful in attention to detail, and he loves symbolism. I think the 153 are emblematic of the great catch that is to come, the coming haul that is that is uh, going to happen, the what is going to happen at the end of Eastertide? At the end of the Easter time, Pentecost. And on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter is going to stand up and he's going to preach. I mean, he's going to be the fisher of men. So you go back all the way to the 4th century to Augustine. And Augustine was the first one to recognize 153. Is there anything significant about that number? Oh, there is. It happens to be the triangular of the number 17. In other words, if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 all the way up to 17, you get the number 153. And they call it a triangular because you go like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and it forms... Okay, 
And Augustine says, well, I know the number 17 is just the combination of 10 and 7, isn't it? 10, the Ten Commandments is what must be in view here. 7, the sevenfold gift of the Holy Spirit is what must be in view here. No, what's in view here is Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit falls from heaven and uh, Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel and the church explodes on that day, how many different nations are listed that come into the church on the day of Pentecost? 17. 17. Ezekiel prophesied about that day in Ezekiel chapter 47, and it shall come to pass on that day that fishermen will stand on the banks of the sea and they shall spread forth their nets and the fish shall be exceedingly many in number and many different kinds of fish shall be caught. What Ezekiel said, 47.10. And on Pentecost, that's what happens. And it really is significant because who is the preacher on Pentecost? None other than, than Peter. Now, I see your faces. You're a little skeptical (laughs) out there. You're wondering, would John's readers really pick up on the triangular of 17? And what I want to say is, maybe, maybe, uh, that culture was way more into numbers and symbolism than ours is. But even if they, they didn't immediately get it, so to speak, don't, if the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures, like we believe, I mean, wouldn't it be kind of within the Spirit's parameters that he can include tiny little flourishes like that in the story? I mean, sort of like aha moments that, that they might not have gotten, but later generations do get. I think John is trying, or at least the Holy Spirit is trying to get this symbolically across. Now, I'll, and I'll give you a couple other reasons why I think that's the case. There are several odd details of the story, and I tried to highlight them as I read it to you earlier. How was Peter dressed when he was in the boat? It says that he was stripped down, which makes sense. He's out on the water. He doesn't need to be encumbered by a big old coat and outer garment. He's probably stripped down to maybe to his underwear. But then when he sees Jesus or hears about Jesus on the shore... It says, was it, I forget the verse it was in, verse, um, well, it, it, in one of the verses, it says that he puts his coat on, and then he dives into the water with his coat. Now, isn't that strange? Who, who is, who's trying to swim through uh, the water with this you know, waterlogged coat around his body? But then with his robe on, he comes before Jesus He stands before Jesus, and in verse 11, the other odd detail is then he goes back to the boat, and he pulls all 153 fish in the nets by himself onto the shore. Peter hauls the load. He brings all the fish to Jesus. I just think it is uh, an incredible picture of of God in action, of bringing, of of the hall of the nations that's going to come in on Pentecost and it's still happening today. Let me tell you a story. One of the missionaries that we started supporting at All Saints at the beginning of 2015, his name is Thomas Manning. Tom Manning, and he works 
at a Christian hospital in a Middle Eastern country, which I'm not going to name because, you know, the sermons get uploaded on the internet. I'll just say that he has a very, very unique ministry opportunity in this place. And here's, and he sends every so many, every so often to his praying partners correspondence. This is the correspondence he sent me on March the 11th. He writes, Dear praying friends, let me tell Amal, here's a story. Amal is a 29 year old refugee from Darfur, the Sudan. She's been living in our city with her brother since fleeing Sudan a couple of years ago. Soldiers, I mean, it's remarkable that she even survived Darfur, right? The soldiers that were there beat her and smashed her face in. They smashed her teeth on both sides. She came to our medical facilities clinically depressed and looking for help. Now, normally, we admit, we only admit patients with chest illnesses, as that's our specialty. But after our dentist looked at her, he agreed that we could help her situation significantly if we gave her a few weeks. And so we admitted Amal. Over the course of her month-long treatment, Amal got to know the nurses and the doctors. And she saw the love of God by which they serve others. She attended the daily patient meetings, and she heard there the gospel of King Jesus proclaimed. And after one of the meetings, she asked how she could know this king. And so one of our staff explained to her the gospel and uh, that she could accept Jesus by faith and, and accept him into her life. And Amal prayed then, and she asked Jesus into her life. Well, within a couple of days, Amal had a dream. She saw a great light and heard a clear voice which said, Follow the truth. Follow me. And Amal said, I'm afraid, Lord. And this voice said, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. And she went with this great light in her dream, and then she woke up. Well, at the end of her month-long treatment, one of the nurses was sitting with Amal and praying with her, and what we, we gave her a memory chip of Scripture to put into her cell phone. The nurse told them all that if she seeks Jesus with all her heart, he will reveal himself to her. And she said, he already has. I asked him to show me the truth. And he did. I told him that there were these people, that, I'm sorry, that these people are so different. And I want to know which way is right. I, I asked him to show me if their way um, or the, what I believed is the right way. And he showed me, and, he, and she told him about the dream. He changed me. Tom finishes. Psalm 67 is our family's favorite psalm. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that his name might be known in all the earth, his saving power, his salvation known among all the nations. It sounds like God answered that psalm. Because he shined his face on her, on Amal, through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm like you. I hear crazy missionary stories all the time, and I am a rather skeptical of them because I know that the tremendous pressure that missionaries are on to, to drum up you know, North American money to be able to stay over there. But I have a very high degree of level of confidence that, that Tom's legit. And he doesn't tell stories like this, you know, just for sensationalism's sake. He's carrying Peter's torch to the Middle East, 
He's on the fishing expedition that's still going strong. And, you know, the 153 was both Pentecost and the future. And I think it was both Jesus' way of sort of taking them back to that first event of the great hall and busting out the wedding ring, the, the really big wedding ring, saying it's, this is going to be so much more wonderful than you ever imagined. I think that's what's going on here. And it just doesn't hurt to be reminded of it, does it? The second recreated event is reflected there in the sermon title. 153 fish with a charcoal fire. It centers around the charcoal fire. If you have been reading through the Gospel of John, you would have noticed, especially if you're reading through it in the Greek, you would have noticed that just a couple chapters prior, there's another incident around the very same word for charcoal fire that takes place in the high priest's courtyard. Peter's there, and a group of men are there, and they're warming their hands beside the charcoal fire. One of the people says to Peter, you're one of Jesus' disciples, and Peter says, no, I'm I'm not. Yes, you are. I can tell it by your accent. No, I don't even know the man. And they keep pressing him. Jesus is... um, like in the background, undergoing trial. And eventually he just calls down curses upon himself. God curse me if I'm lying here. I swear I do not know the man. Three times Peter denies Jesus Christ. Three times he affirms him here around a charcoal fire. So let's go back to the very beginning illustration. The blindfolded uh, bride... (laughs) as I take her back to our our wedding proposal, what if we were to twist that a little bit? And let's say I blindfolded you, and instead of of taking you back to the moment of your grandest memory, I take you back to the moment of your grandest failure. where, Where would that be? What moment, what place is that? The most colossal screw up in your entire Life. Where would that be? And for some of you, it would take you several minutes to kind of hit the memory banks and work through it and figure out where that place was. For some of you, you know it instantly, don't you? Because it's always on your mind. It haunts your dreams. It's part of your nightmares. If, if, if that place, it, if I undo the blindfold and you realize that you're standing there, then all of a sudden it just comes back, flooding, flashback, flooding on you sweaty uh, palms of your hands and racing heart and there you are and it's not a dream it's real Peter do you love me yes Lord you know that I love you but do you love me more than these and the question down through the ages has been what are the these what are you referring to one option Jesus is looking around at the the fish and the net and this boat and the tackling gear. Do you love me more than fishing and fish and your old occupations, your old way of life? He could be saying that. Another option is that he looks around the men around the fire. These. Do you love me more than these guys? I mean, it's good for you to love them, but But is your love for me the primary and central love of your life? He could be asking, he could be asking that. 
But I wonder if, if Jesus isn't actually asking Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Do you love me more than they love me? Is your love superior than, than theirs? Because that was the very thing Peter boasted about. Remember just hours before the betrayal? The very thing he boasted about was, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Lord, I will go to prison for you. Prison, martyrdom. I don't know about the rest of these clowns, but I, I will go all the way. He boasts. He says, the rest of these guys are a little sketchy, but I'm ready, for, I'm ready to go to the very end. And this is what Jonathan Edwards wrote about spiritual pride. He said, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others, but a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is, a suspi- he is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. And that certainly could not have been said of Peter hours before he denied his Lord. It seems like Peter, uh, in his zeal, was very suspicious of his, of his brothers. Uh, I'm not certain that that's what's going on here. I mean, as I've tried to say, I really think there, there could be any one of these options, or even the agape phileo option could be in, in uh, view. But it seems to me that Peter's response is just a humbled and chastened response. One, one of my favorite responses in all the Bible, he says, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to justify myself, but you know, Lord. Um, and it doesn't matter even how I feel right now about myself. You know. You know that you know that I love you. Jesus is taking Peter back to his point of greatest failure. Peter had, I mean, when you go through the like category of Christian sins, I mean, arguably he committed the worst sin that's possible for a Christian, and he did not do it just once. He did it three times. And Jesus is taking him back. What are you, you driving the nail into me? Or the knife into me, Jesus? And, and screwing he takes him back to that spot where he, he would feel the greatest amount of shame, the intensity of, of sorrow, um, where he probably felt the most, like the most miserable failure in the world. Yeah, you've been there, and I've been there, where you feel like just the biggest, most wretched, good for nothing. You, know, you fill in the blanks. And when you're at that moment, what do you want to do at that moment? You just want to flee from Jesus? <laughs> you want to flee from church? You want to flee from prayer? I can't pray at that moment. You just want to get away from it as, as quickly as possible. And that's what struck me in the passage this week is the beauty that this reconciliation would have never taken place if Peter had dived off the boat and swam the other way. Peter swims toward Jesus instead of away from him. Peter hears the, the voice of Jesus or at least knows that Jesus is on the shore. And, and in that moment of, of just shame and failure, he swims toward him and not away from him, which is what we hardly ever do. It's got to be an invitation, doesn't it? And oftentimes I find when I, 
It just depends on, like, what voice are you going to listen to? Your own voice is really loud, especially as it's talking to you about your own failures. It's so loud, it drowns out everything. Good for nothing, worthless, get out of here. Which one are you going to swim toward? The voice of Jesus calling from the shore. So Becky Pippert, I'll close with this story. Becky, Becky Pippert tells us in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. She was speaking at a conference, and as often happens at the end of a conference, somebody will want to come up and, and talk to the speaker. This lady comes up, and she's just sobbing, totally disconsolate. I want to talk with you. So they go off into a side room. She said, yeah, my husband and I were youth leaders. We were youth workers at a large church. And, you know, we were the attractive, vibrant couple who gets to work with the, the kids. And um, we had a really successful ministry. And we were engaged. And a few months before we were married, we started sleeping together. And we felt a tremendous amount of guilt. We felt like absolute hypocrites. And then I found out that I was pregnant. What do you do when you're the youth workers in a large conservative church and you're pregnant and you're not married? She had an abortion. You know, I can't tell these, I can't tell my church this. It would ruin me, it would ruin us, it would ruin everything. Our church has never been through scandal before. So I had an abortion. She told Becky, my wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Here comes the bride. Everybody in church is smiling at me as I am beautiful, innocent bride in white as, as I walk down the aisle. And all I could think of was, you're a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed. You're a failure. I know what you are, and God knows what you are. She's telling Becky Pippert this story, and she says, I just want to go back and do it over again. I just want to do it over again. Yeah, one of the hardest parts of life is you can't go back and do it over again. There, there are no do-overs. There's no Groundhog's Day. Bill Murray, you know, go back and relive that day until you finally live it perfectly there's no, in golf terms, there's no mulligan. You don't get a do-over. But Becky said, you do get forgiveness. God does not offer us do-overs, but he offers us forgiveness. And that must be, at the end of the day, that must be enough for you. God doesn't give him a, a mulligan. What he gives you is his son, his son for you, bearing your sins and shame on the cross. And I, I could relate to that woman's story because we are like that. We're like, if I could only go back and redo this situation, then things would be all right and, and I wouldn't be in this situation. No, we don't get a redo, but we do get a son standing on the shore. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. We get a son calling out to us, wanting to restore us, wanting to heal and forgive us, 
wanting to share a meal with us, wanting to share breakfast with us at 9.30 in the morning. A breakfast for failures. We get a son who offers forgiveness. And if I've at all spoken to, in, to, to one of you in the church today, you know, God's word is don't swim away from him. No, dive in toward him. Come back to him. 